Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Uh, uh, today, Josie is uh, unfortunately still away, but she's going to be back very soon. In fact, I was talking to her this week and she went that she was chomping at the bit to return and do Book Shambles. So hopefully in the next couple of weeks, uh, she will be back with us. But a couple of things before you hear the interview that I did with Reverend Richard Coles. One is, uh, don't forget our Cosmic Shambles bookshop where you can get lots of signed copies of books by people you've heard on this. Maybe even some people you haven't heard on this as well. You get signed copies of my book as well, The Importance of Being Interested. And also I can dedicate them if you would like that as well and also thank you very much to all of our patreon supporters uh, if you do support us for our patreon you do get as you probably know extended versions of these episodes as well as lots of other bits and pieces in fact the thing that most recently come up is uh, a film of an hour long i think it's about a 60 minute film of me talking to the northampton arts lab in a garden by a flaming fire it's uh, a very evocative it feels almost like the prologue to a horror movie in which zombie sailors come back to torture a town that's betrayed them. But that never happens. It's just me talking by a big fire surrounded by the Northampton Arts Lab. So that has come to all of our Patreon supporters. So thank you very much to them. And now here's producer Trent to remind you of some of the URLs that Robin has just been talking about. The shop is at cosmicshambles.com slash shop and the Patreon is at patreon.com slash bookshambles. And also... Coming up is the Nine Lessons and Carols for Curious People. Rescheduled shows in the spring over Easter weekend, April 16 and 17. Two nights of music and comedy and science at King's Place, hosted by Robin. Lots of special guests. Matt Parker, Jim Bob, Lucy Green, Miranda Lowe, Joe Neary, Chris Lintott, Helen Chersky, Grace Petrie and loads more. Cosmicshambles.com slash Nine Lessons is where you can get tickets and all the information about that. And now... Here's Robin and Richard. But let's go back. Let's go back to your childhood, childhood, childhood. Taking a <laughs> piece there from the wonderful Bonzo Dog Doodle Band Sport, one of my favourite songs of all time. Um, your childhood, I, I, you see, I've imagined, and this might just be, you know, I, I might be presupposing, but I would have, I've always thought you were a bookish little boy. Were you a bookish little boy? How could you possibly have formed that opinion? I was the nerdiest, swattiest boy in Barton Seagrave, and there were a few, let me tell you. So, yes, I was. I was. Um, I, I had that weird thing about being born into not a particularly cultured family, but for some reason, from very early on, I got excited by things, music, books, um, and... Uh, and I kind of worked my way through it pretty much on my own, actually, because nobody in my world, I didn't grow up in a world where people read books or listened to music particularly. So I kind of found my own way. And I did that thing, Robin, that so many people did of my age and background. This is, I'm talking about Kettering, which, believe you me, is no by right. Um, but uh, I used to send off for things. And there was these things called the Lives of the Great Composers that came in a glossy magazine with a 10-inch vinyl record inside. And I just wore them out listening to... Haydn, Mozart, Beethoven, and then slightly more kind of broad affair as I as I went along. But I did I didn't know that what I was doing was kind of filling my head and my memory and my life and my all sorts with 
all these delicious fruits, I think. And books too, because, you know, there was no opera house in Northamptonshire. It was very hard to find tapas in Kettering in those days too, let me tell you. But you could go to the library. We had a great library and a bookshop. So that was my entree to a wider world, really. So what were the bits of culture in your house? Were the, were the, you know, what would the records have been? What would the books have been on, on the shelf? Well, that's what my mother basically reads only the works of the late Duchess of Devonshire, Deborah. So that's really all she's interested in is the opinions of Deborah, Duchess of Devonshire. So that's all she's ever read, really. So that was that. She must have a lovely garden, I hope. She does have, well, she did have a lovely garden. She's not up to it now, I'm afraid. But yes, but she just, my mother would like the idea of a, a kind of witty um, aristocrat would for her be um, all she required in terms of edification and entertainment. My father liked guidebooks, um, The Cruel Sea, that sort of thing. Um, Leon Uris, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, and... Nothing too demanding, I think. But he did love music and he would listen to... He loved late sort of Viennese... Well, he loved Bruckner more than anything. Bruckner and Mahler, I think, were his two great loves. So he would listen to them. But we didn't have culture in Kettering. There was um, a Chinese restaurant called The Mandarin where they made pagodas out of a carrot. That was, you know, sculpture. Um, uh, but there was nothing really apart from that. Rather a good collection of art, actually, at Kettering art gallery made by an enterprising curator in the 1950s. There was some early stuff by Howard Hodgkin and there was some Cahoon and McBride, but I didn't really know what it was. I had a great aunt, Sheila, who lived in London with a woman called Elspeth in Notting Hill. Elspeth was rather fey and Sheila wore jodhpurs and smoked a pipe. And Sheila was a violinist and played in, I can't remember which orchestra it was, but she played in an orchestra. And she would sometimes come up and bring with her a whiff of the exotic and also Embassy Regal which she smoked in considerable quantities. She used to let me smoke as well from the age of about 13. So I was close to her and sensed in her there was this richer life being lived than the one I could lay my hands on. So, and she, I used to, she retired here actually. And uh, I used to go and see her. I used to sit, we used to just smoke and listen to music. And then she got into a fight with a policeman who stopped her for speeding and died shortly after. It's not related to that incident, but um, it was lung cancer, inevitably. But so, so there were these kind of interesting hints and suggestions of a life being lived elsewhere that would be a life that I would want to live. But I had to sort of get away from here, really, to find it. And I wondered as well, in terms of, of sexuality, in terms of being gay, and I, I was thinking when I was growing up that the books that were around a lot when there were friends of mine who, who were first kind of, you know, realising and, and becoming open about being gay were probably The Beautiful Room is Empty. Oh, yeah. The Autumn Diaries seemed to be. Ev everyone read The Autumn Diaries. Beautiful Room is Empty. Uh, and uh, also a lot of Quentin Crisp. Would, and those would have been the first ones, I think. And, and I know, obviously, for each generation it's different. You know, those kind of... Because for some people, I don't know how true it would be for you, you know, for some people that first bit of being able to explore an otherness is through books. Yeah. Well, that's a good question. I mean, I can remember I had a master. At, I went to a prep school, so I was under, I must have been about 10, 11. Uh, he was a brilliant teacher, but he put into my hands the autobiography of James Kirkup, a fascinating writer, critic, who later became slightly notorious for having written the poem about a centurion fantasising about Jesus on the cross, which was published in Gay News and caused the prosecution for blasphemy by Mary Whitehouse. Um, 
which caused a little kerfuffle at the time. But how interesting that that master should see in the 10 year old me um, a sensibility that would respond to that. And, and I did. But it was all very sort of indistinct until puberty, I suppose, when sexual sexuality began to take on a specific form. Well, my friend Matthew. Um, and then I sort of kind of went. But I mean, you know, when I was doing it, I'm, I'm older than you. And so what were my points of reference? Well, it was Larry Grace and John Inman, who I thought were hilarious, but I didn't think that was my life. Um, and then the Naked Civil Servant happened and John Hurt's performance of Quentin Crisp in that. And again, it was not a life I imagined anything, but it was the first time a specifically explicitly gay life was laid out as something that was more than just a caricature, I think. Um, and I remember being fascinated by it and kind of excited by it and thinking, oh, maybe that's something like me. I don't know. Larry Grayson, that's, that's fascinating as well when you think about, um, where was it he was from? Again, it said Nuneaton, isn't it? I think so. And because they, didn't they want to put up something, something they wanted to have some some kind of uh, something put up for him and he said, I don't want anything there because the councillors had been so, you know, once no one liked the idea of celebrating at one point Larry Grayson coming from, I think he was a, a remarkable performer actually. I find, him, I find him more and more fascinating with age. Oh, me too. Um, Best friends with Noel Gordon. Mm. fascinating and also you know i don't i think sometimes we judge quite harshly entertainers who made sort of campery and also the kind of ambivalence their thing but what else were you going to do i mean credit to them the, the courage of it and also the boldness of it and also i think what they kept alive was you know one thing i keep, I keep discovering in my own community here which is you know middle england and very conservative small c big c but of course, there were people living lives like mine way back when. And although it was invisible and obscure and mysterious and never spoken about, nonetheless, it happened. And there are occasionally moments when you see a life from the past flash into a recognisable pattern. And I think people like Larry Grace and John Inman kind of just... We'd have this saying about keeping the rumour of God alive, that one of our things to do as clergy and as christians in a post-christian world is to keep the rumor of god alive and i think it's not just the rumor of god that sometimes gets kept alive but i think people like that kept alive a rumor again of a of a livable life mm. it's interesting thinking of of yesterday i don't know if you saw this adam k apparently various people decided to uh say to adam k they didn't understand <laughs> why it. he'd made the doctor gay uh in the adaptation of it which i thought is very interesting which is that it it couldn't be understood if because surely he it would it would he would have repeatedly written about that in the book if it was true why have they done that and I thought that was that was a very interesting um, very brief kerfuffle which of course he dealt with as wittily as he normally does oh, but, I, I spoke to Adam yesterday actually funnily enough but um, uh, well I knew no but then of course I don't know that's interesting it revealing that people don't imagine that that character could be gay because it doesn't conform to their version of gay, the script running in their heads, I don't know. Um, and also he's never, if you were to bump into Adam, you wouldn't think, I don't know what you'd think. Don't think things about people. Yeah, I think that's the, that's the change, isn't it, which you start to see now in further generations, is that it that question no longer really becomes a question. I, I sort of I, forget I, hopefully. it. Hopefully. Yeah, I mean, I sort of forget it because I naturally am a product of 
time and place and I categorise people accordingly. But and that's my nephews and nieces. My niece is doing, she's at Nottingham doing a history degree and she's writing her dissertation on the politics of the miners' strike in the 1980s. And I was involved in Lesbians and Gays Support the Miners, which sounds like a laboured joke, but actually it was a life-transforming thing for everyone involved in it. So she's been interviewing me. So I'm kind of, the, the, I've become a sort of uh, historical footnote, really, uh, in my niece's uh, degree. And it's just really interesting just how utterly... It, how utterly sort of surprised they are to understand that a lesbians and gays would want to organize themselves to support minors or that that would ever be awkward or difficult that there was a kind of huge cultural gulf between the two she just in her world it just doesn't it doesn't register which is great it's strange isn't it when you realize that you're now old enough to be history i was thinking of that where i was in a bookshop malvern book co-op and when i was going around bookshops in the autumn every single one i saw a book i'd not seen before and there's an interesting book that's come out about the greenham common women and, and my kind of experience of that was when i was 10 that's where my really grumpy victorian grandmother lived and you know she would talk about the fact not i, I would overhear it was like that they were coming into the woods and urinating and she was going to set her whippet on them and all of these things you know and you would have and and now you look back and it does seem quite remarkable that that is actually i think a, a, a remarkable act of activism uh that what happened with green and common and the green and common women and feels a very kind of transitional phase into where we you know hopefully in the more positive end of things are now yes but i just find it so fearsomely difficult to track where politics went from then till now, really. Because the world is just so not what I thought it would be now, really. So what did you... I mean, that's... You know, my, my, my dad, I think, is uh, obviously is considerably older than you, but, I mean, for him, he's in a... Still finds it a period of shock. Once he started reading The Guardian when he was 88, which was a late time to swap from The Telegraph, but he did. Um, and everything was, of course, this kind of, you know, just revelatory moment because there's so many stories that he'd never seen covered. You know, the very first day... I used to talk about this. Is that the very first day uh, that he subscribed to The Guardian, there was Hannah Gadsby on the front page of, of the of G2 and you know he's real oh, do you know this woman Hannah Gatsby she sounds very interesting she's a lesbian from Tasmania you know and all this stuff and it was just you know and it was very interesting to watch that he had gone through a long period of of his life seeing progress and now he watches a lot of the voices that are elevated in the mainstream and he watches this government you know I, I would say he's probably a, a you know he he's what i would call a patriarchal tory a, a lord carrington tory oh, do you know what God. i mean that that I long for patriarchal tories well, well that's you know that's his history is you look after everyone and you know everyone in the village and you make sure you know all of that kind of thing those those were his his values and now well, no. you know he had a big banner for the green party during the last local election yeah i mean i, could, I just love the idea of a politics where Everyone's, and I think it was a lot to do with that generation of politicians who'd served in the Second World War, who understood that there was a national interest that was that transcended party interest. Whereas now, you just get the feeling, particularly with this present government, that their national interest is party interest. So they bedeck themselves in Union Jacks and uh, turn out that sort of rather cliched oratory, and imagine that somehow, you know, that's that. Well, too depressing. Yeah. Let's move on to let, let's move back to when you were eighteen. Okay. So uh, when you were first, like, I mean, in terms of the music scene, in terms of uh, the communards, we at that point were you still reading, or did life at that point become so caught up in that 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 world? Well, no, I always read. I, I read absolutely um, voraciously. I mean, I, that's a cliche thing, but um, 
I still I don't read as much as I used to actually and I read a lot more non-fiction than fiction now but if I'm on holiday I can read a book a day sometimes two books a day and I like to have that sounds boastful and actually I'm not sure that reading quickly is anything to boast about actually but it's just I think I've just got a I uh, I just do it I've done it a lot so I do it quickly I think maybe I should read slower that might be a good idea do, um, do you retain it because your Northampton neighbour Alan Moore is yeah. not only a voracious reader but has this incredible uh memory for well, I used to um, I used to retain it, but now I can't really retain anything particularly. But that might just be age and the onset of dementia, I'm not sure. But uh, And also, I can't... Uh, when David died, one of the unexpected effects of bereavement was I couldn't read. And uh, for the first time in my life, I just I just couldn't read. I couldn't concentrate, so I'd start, you know, set out with the best of intentions and read something I wanted to read by a writer I was interested in. And sometimes try to read stuff that I've always loved, you know, to go back to old favourites. And my eye just fell off the page. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't watch a box set or anything. So I sat in the garden doing nothing, which actually was rather good as it turned out. But um, I got my I got my habit of reading back now, although I don't read as much as I used to. Were you able to? I was thinking, you know, when when David died, you you wrote some very you know really beautifully honest and uh pieces and that act of being able to write which of course you are a very good writer but that act of being able to to write and to did that help in terms of ordering the grief and ordering the pre the experience before the grief as well no idea i did it because it's what i do and i didn't really think about it i mean i tell you what what, why that happened really wrong was because of facebook like most people you know i live in a place where most of my friends don't live so i'm in touch with people on facebook every day and so i'm just used to kind of almost keeping a sort of diary but not quite of life in those daily conversations so when david died i just kept on having those conversations with people and then funny enough it's philip hensher said you know maybe you should just be in the room for a while and I thought he was right actually so I, I did but I'd started writing about the experience and then I just carried on writing it down and then I did a piece for a newspaper and then my publisher said you should do this as a book and I thought okay so I, I did did it order st- I mean I think it was I wanted to capture I'm sure this was it Larkin says the instinct to preserve is at the bottom of all art well rather grand but I think I did want to stop David disappearing into the universe and one of those things about writing was to just to try to hoard the fragments of him before they uh, before they were lost forever and that was kind of almost an organic thing I didn't really think about it I just I just did it um I can't say it was cathartic people often say or assume or ask me if it was a cathartic process and it's not cathartic if catharsis means a sort of discharge of awfulness that then doesn't trouble you anymore it wasn't that at all lots of ways it compounded it i think but it was where i was at the time and uh i kept a diary for years and years and years and uh, i don't anymore but because of facebook but i used to and i think i just got into the habit of writing stuff down it's what writers should do is write stuff down i think Mm. Do you like diaries, by the way? Because I'm a huge. I love reading. Oh, I mean, I, ret- I return to to Kenneth Williams' diary all the time. What are your favourites? 
Uh, well, one of my photos is on, on my birthday. Kenneth Williams had uh, a dream uh, about uh, attempting to have sex with the Lothario, which all went horribly wrong. And then he woke up and he was in a terribly miserable mood. So I like the fact that Kenneth Williams, just as I was being born at 6.45 on the 20th of February 1969, Kenneth Williams was having a dream that was deeply uh, uh, unsatisfactory. And then every now and again, I'll, ju- I'll just look up and just those little lines like, we decided to go to Croydon, but we just walked in and left immediately. I, l- I just like those kind of little moments that you're and I also love the fact with Williams is the fact that he will it's very rare for anyone to survive unscathed yeah you know there are I I think I think even Maggie Smith every now and again but you know there there will be oh Barbara showed herself up and made a right fool of me as well blah blah and then the next day Barbara is of course you know so watching I like the flibbity gibbet nature the speed which you can see with some diarists yeah and he wasn't uh, I think the best diarists are people who you are not determined to make you like them. Uh, so sort of frankness is good, isn't it? J.R. Ackley, I think, is my favourite. I don't know if you've read him. He's no. wonderful. He was editor of The Listener uh, in the 50s, wrote a couple of very good books, um, and he's just fascinating. I love his diaries more than anything, I think. James Lees Milne I like a lot. Francis Kilvert I like a lot. Um, Denton Welch. Yeah, I could happily read a diary all day long. Rupert Everett, I think, is does is wonderful. Uh, his his stuff is hil- hilarious. His, I mean, he, his his explanation of when he climbed out of the window when doing the Celebrity Apprentice for Comic Relief. Yeah. As, apart from everything else, I think those volumes. I would imagine. I mean, I know they've been hugely successful, but I would imagine there's quite a few people who haven't. I mean, actually, I'll tell you who my favourite is because I've suddenly remembered because you created the link with Rupert Everett because he did the reading. That when I read things like Modern Nature by Derek Jarman. Oh yeah, um, and and the other books as well. I, I find all of those diaries just again an incredible. They're not merely a snapshot of the time because they do also that the, the the time is not vital. You don't have to know about the history, but also he is pinpointing uh, an incredible experience in in society. Yeah, um, I could read them all day long, and it's again, it's just the ones where people aren't trying to particularly, you know, strike a pose. They're the ones I like most of all. And also the stuff, it's not... I always like the things when you read, someone said, oh, I heard a chaffinch today or I saw a parrot outside. And then you realise it's the day that the armistice was signed or something, and you realise they're just not interested in that particularly. It's the texture of the everyday that's that's the interesting thing. And I found that when I was keeping a diary, I used to write down my impressive thoughts about the major questions of the day, and I realised I just read them back, they just seem so preposterous. And that actually what endures on the page is something you overheard someone say on a bus or what they've done with hummus that sort of thing did you did you read tracy thorns another planet oh, loved it loved that's it, hilarious loved it. i just yeah. i love the fact that she basically goes i look back now and, and it's, it's just filled with as you said i mean beyond mundane went to brent cross to get some new leggings no leggings it was all absolute rubbish so i just came back and then she goes i remember that was also the day and it will have been something you know i don't think it was actually losing virginity but not far off and sometimes quite you know what you would count as the major event but the major event was the inability to find a bobble hat yeah well you know it's important. Um, it's that thing, isn't it? It's the sort of textures of stuff that I like. How, um, you know, prose, 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 and then all of a sudden something surprising and beautiful. Denton Welch, I think, is wonderful. Have you read his diary? No, I'm going to oh, make a note of that. Wonderful. Um, Do you have? Did you have a first favourite author? Oh yes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. <laughs> 
My first right. foray into fiction was my grandfather took me to Oundle Bookshop, still there, fantastic independent bookshop, and he bought me the collected short stories of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle when I was about seven, I think, and I absolutely adored them. So I, I just read and read and read and read and read. I still read them, reread them now occasionally. So Sherlock Holmes and Doctor Watson and the Bruce Partington plans and the Speckled Band, the Lion's Mane, all that stuff. Just as, um, yeah, that's, uh, I loved it. I entered that world. And it was the first time I'd entered somebody else's imaginative world. And it was so vividly peopled that I wonder about it now. You know, the other thing I think about now at nearly 60 is how much my perception of the world has been shaped and created by books I've read, music I've heard, and pictures I've looked at. I was on my bike the other day. And I thought, oh, that's a constable sky. And then I realised that we don't look at nature, and I love looking at nature, but we don't look at it with a completely innocent eye. We look at it with an eye that's been conditioned by culture. And so when we say constable sky, what we mean is, is that the prism through which we look at the sky is painterly sometimes. Mm. Um, and I'm very conscious of that now, about how much my... The other thing is using a phone all the time. So, you know, I can use a phone to take pictures of the stuff that... And today I saw a ploughed field that was really beautiful and I took a picture of it. And I realised that the way I crop a photo on my phone has changed the way I look at the world. It's not just mm. Twitter makes you interact with people differently or Facebook. It's actually the way phones take pictures changes the way we interact with the world, I think. Hello, sorry to disturb the conversation. Just to say, you are listening to the abridged version of Josie and Robin's book shambles. If you'd like to hear the full version, then you can support us via Patreon and get all of the other bits of tittle-tattle that dropped out of our mouth. Poetry was always a big thing for me and because uh, I, I found it so concentrated. And if I was looking for... Um, uh, harbinger of a different world poetry was often the thing and, I, and also I was very pretentious I, I'm a pretentious person but I was a very pretentious child and I longed to so I was very you know walking around at 12 with a copy of Ulysses ostentatiously under my arm some of which I read but uh, you know in spite of being preposterous um, some of that stuff landed and is still there now and shaped all sorts of things I think I often wonder if my reading list had been different how different might I have been? I don't know. Mm. Well, the two things, though, it's 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 a, it's a circular thing, isn't it? Because what you were drawn to as a reader, and then that may well, you know, then in that choose-your-own-adventure game that you might not even know you're choosing, it might go off on many different branches, but that initial, that starting point of what yeah. you were first drawn to read, you know, had you just been given a great big battle-action picture library and never given Conan Doyle, I would imagine there would have still been that boy that was hankering to read those uh, those adventures. Do you, I do think that the Sherlock Sherlock Holmes made me want to be someone who was possessed of kind of extraordinary mental powers and who played the violin. And I wanted to take opium. I didn't know what it was. I think I thought it was like soap on a rope or something. I don't know. But so I wanted to be a sort of lonely magnificent figure of extraordinary powers that i'm not sure was such a great thing but uh that i like the idea of that that was a that's a that was a big thing yeah my okay. first reading was anton b and i i was a phenomenally quick reader so when i was 
in kindergarten. I had a very high reading age for my real age. And uh, I remember my way in was, was Ant and B. They were the first books I read. And then Dick and Dora. We didn't have Janet and John. We had Dick and Dora. I don't know why. And then it was The Flying Chair was my Enid Blyton, my core reading in the oeuvre of Enid Blyton. And I just loved the idea of things, the idea of a chair magically flying and taking you into a new mysterious world. I was reading, I was went round when uh, Emma Freud and Richard Curtis, their daughter Scarlett, when she was very young. I remember going round and reading her a flying chair story at bedtime. And... Um, and I said, is your chair a flying chair? And she said, well, you know, it does sometimes sprout wings. Oh, oh, yeah. And it was so interesting seeing her imagination beginning to kind of grip the idea of magic and transformation. Do you feel that that, you know, it's something, I, I don't know if we ever got around to talking about it when you've been on Monkey Cage, but that that divide between magical possibilities and the laws of physics yeah. that, we still haven't quite necessarily in our culture worked out the way that you can try and possess both of those things oh. that you can that that sometimes for some people the 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 solidity of the laws of the universe means that they they you know sure 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 it doesn't matter go, go break the second law of thermodynamics etc and all of that play is gone trying to get that balance between having that play but at the same time also having the uh you know, the, 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 the laws of science. Well, it's never been a problem for me because I've always thought the real is miraculous enough. I've never felt that I needed anything to be endorsed by um, an unlikely thing happening in front of me, although unlikely things happen all the time, I suppose. Um, with the exception of the resurrection, which um, uh, is a highly unlikely thing, which I did think happened. Um, but I, I've always found quite enough to delight and enthrall me in what's in front of me without needing to import. It's, it's interesting about this. I think about my academic field, long neglected, is New Testament textual criticism. And it's a very interesting field of study because what you do is you take the text of the New Testament and you subject them to the same critical processes and techniques and disciplines that you would subject any work of literature to. And what you find is a wealth of evidence which suggests that privileging the book, as religions do, as something mystically preserved from human imperfection because of its divine origin, that doesn't stack up. And what you see is that the Bible is not, in a way, you know, dictation of the taken from the divine. It is a collection of stories and histories and speculative work and all kinds of things put together over thousands of years of people struggling to understand the notion of God in particular forms. And I remember having, I was to, when I was writing my thesis, which was on the Epistle to the Ephesians, which I'm sure you know phenomenally well, um, I was in the library at King's College London sitting next to a systematic theologian who was working on Colossians, which is very closely related to Ephesians. And um, he got cross with me because he said, you are a corrosive, your, your study is corrosive. And I said, why? And he said, well, whenever I say something systematic based on Colossians, you say, oh, you can't say that because that text isn't secure. That represents a witness that is wild and unreliable. And if you check it against the Alexandrian text, blah, blah, blah. blah. And he's saying it's like having someone spoil the ring cycle by talking about the second bassoonist music stand. And I said, I'm sure about that. And he said, you know, it's, uh, it's such a 
destructive project. And I thought, well, does the Bible, is it lessened in any way by being revealed in that way? And I thought, no, not at all. If anything, it just enriches my reading of it. And it doesn't do anything to dethrone it or destabilise it. I find it just makes the whole thing richer and more fascinating. Was there any point where, I mean, in terms of your, your religion, what's the furthest away you've been from? I mean, have you, have you always had some sense of uh, an experience, presence or belief in a God, or have there been periods of time where that faded far enough in the background to be not with you at all? No, I mean, I've uh, from the age of eight, I was a chorister from the age of eight, and within two Sundays of being a chorister, I knew with absolute certainty that God did not exist and that religion was a fairy tale and that no one in their right mind could possibly live their life according to it. So that was without, that was unarguable. I started the the school chapel choir atheists club with my friend Porky and Matthew. Um, and it just seemed to me just absurd that anyone would ever think that. And I used to laugh. So I, I was involved in the life of the church all the time because I was a chorister. So every day and twice on Sundays, I was there singing the words the beautiful, beautiful music of the Anglican choral tradition, the wonderfully sonorous words of the authorised version and so on, the Book of Common Prayer. So that's kind of, you know, that's deeply, deeply imprinted. There's no me without that in it, I think. But rationally, I didn't engage with it at all until I was in my late 20s. I mean, and all through my 20s, my teens and my 20s, I was not only convinced that uh, God was a myth and that religion was nonsense, but that it was pernicious, wicked nonsense and was the enemy. And it was only when I got to my late 20s and a sort of period of turbulence, I started wanting to be back in chapel again, not because I wanted to know the mystery of God, although it was that. I just missed, there was something there that was fascinating and compelling and deeply consoling and deeply challenging. And so I found my way back there very reluctantly. And the minute I stepped over the threshold of my own volition, I realised it had been there waiting for me, actually, forever. Um, but I am, I get atheism, I really do. Most of my best friends are not people who feel uh, the, the necessity of the God hypothesis. It's not essential to them at all, and they live their lives perfectly, adequately and happily without it. And I know what it's like to be an atheist. Unusually, I also know what it's like to be a person of faith, I suppose. So I'm maybe well-placed to think about that, I don't know. Do you find that when you sometimes, some of your congregation, when they're going through uh, problems, when they might be dealing with existential anxiety or grief uh, or loss in other forms, um, what do you find are the most useful things when you, after you've spoken to them, are the things you steer them towards, are the kind of texts and books that you've you found particularly useful? The first thing you do is you don't say anything. So you need to let people talk and in their own time and in their own time. And that was a real lesson for me because, as you know, I am not someone who is slow to join a conversation, if you see what I mean. So I learned to shut up and then just listen and listen and listen and listen. Never offer anyone fake or cheap consolation because why would you do that? Um, I think what people want is steadiness more than anything. So they know that I'm going to pray for them. They know I'm going to pray for the person who they've been grieved by. They know that I'm going to go to church reliably, steadily and do my job. And that's what they want. And they want, in the, in, the, in the sort of chaos of grief, they want people around who look like they know what they're doing. Sometimes it's, it's like just being a competent master of ceremonies that you, you've just got to get them through. I mean, especially with a funeral. It's interesting, I, I sort of pride myself on doing a good funeral and I like doing funerals. Um, 
And then when David died, and it was me who was bereaved, and I was having to, I realised the whole thing is just an ordeal. That um, you hope everyone else goes away and think of that reflected his life, that gives us something lovely, the music was great, the readings were appropriate. But actually it was just an ordeal. I just had to get through the day. And that's why I wanted people around who knew what they were doing. So uh, it was Martin Percy actually took the funeral in the news at the moment as the soon to depart Dean of Christchurch. He'd been David's principal when David was at Theological College. And my curate did the burial. And my fu the funeral directors who I work with all the time, they're good friends of mine. And the thing I noticed was that there's a black humour sort of banter between clergy and funeral directors you know anyone in the death trade medics are the same do that because of necessity but it's just switched off when you are all of a sudden the mourner so the undertaker guys all told i know them all really really well but they were all just silent and solemn and entirely respectful rather than the sort of banter apart from in the hearse on the way to the burial after the funeral i was sitting up front and um an ambulance went past with the siren going and one of the funeral directors said without thinking in the way they do mm, they're playing our tune <laughs> and that was the only moment when the normal bants kind of appeared but they were rightly respectful of a mourner you know and and, and that's i learned something from that i learned that when people are bereaved they their lives have exploded and they're all over the place and you know not everyone i wouldn't want to overgeneralized but pretty much that's often the case it is a strange thing when i think about how much that we there, there seems to be no choice but to live in denial to a certain point yeah. that however much you read about death and, and however much you are aware of it there is a little thing where you know sometimes when you've got very elderly relatives even though you know every, every morning if you, if the phone rings a little bit too early or whatever you think oh is that that but there's still a sense that maybe they will that that idea that somehow, I think somewhere in our mind we have that cognitive distance that says they'll live forever. Do you know what I mean? I know that I sounds do. really trite, but it's even though you are fully aware that this person, you know, that they're, they're, there's something that goes maybe there'll be some kind of trick. It's interesting. I notice it with the way people grieve over pets. So sometimes we say, oh, they're much more upset. Sometimes say to me, I was much more upset by the death of my dog than the death of my wife. And what I realise is that you can get the death of a dog. The death of your wife is too big to get. So you get the bit that's in front of you. You deal with the bit that you can deal with. Whereas the death of a pet, I think, is... Uh, you get that in one go. Also, aren't we always... We're not looking, again, that, that bit where when someone is grieving or when someone has gone through some form of loss, it's normally something mundane that will bring out an incredible moment of rage oh, yeah. or very often because... Every, that, that control, and I don't know how much that is. I, I know there's a guy called Callum Cooper. I don't know if you come across him. He yeah. does lecturing in Northampton, and he's a one of his areas is 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 death of, of, of study. And he, I talked to him lengthily about. It. He said things like when his grandmother died, he had pictures of himself taken with a coffin. He said to the undertaker, he said because on every other experience that we have of every other ceremony, there's pictures. Yeah. And yet in death, in it's especially in England and Wales. The, the the casket is closed before you've ever seen you know for for most people but no, no that that's it someone's put in a box and they're kind of magicked away and all of the things that we do and everything are, are not considered to be you know part of the thing this is a separate time and and therefore that moment of really accepting what's happened everything has been put at a distance already yeah yeah 
It's interesting, isn't it? And I wonder about there's only so much exposure that maybe we can deal with really, and it's different for different for different people. Quite all that stuff. It's an odd thing for me because I'm I know the backstage. So so when David died, we did the full fig. So he was uh, he went into his coffin wearing vestments and with a chalice and pattern, as is the custom for a priest. And then he came into church the night before, and I knew it was going to be a big funeral. And I didn't do anything in the funeral because I didn't want to. I just wanted to mourn rather than you know have a job. But I could receive the body into church. So it was just me and his family. And uh, the body came in, and it was lovely, actually. And we put a pall over the coffin and it lies in the just under the chancel arch and you put a cross and a bible on it and it lies the other way points in a different direction from lay people because of this kind of priestly customs so I did that very very dutifully lit the candles and left it there overnight I came back in the night spent some time with it and uh, and then in the morning we had another funeral so I had to come in in the morning and then move David into the flower room. <laughs> so having had this lovely ritual and ceremony, I then had to bundle him into a side room and shut the door so the other funeral could come in. And then when they went, we brought him out again. So it was, you know, stagehands as well as performers. And uh, that's how it is, of course. And you sort of realise how what those rituals express about what we believe or what we don't believe. Um, and that was interesting for me as someone who is a you know, dispenser of ritual for those purposes. Mm. It's, I find it very interesting reading uh, books by members of the clergy or ex-members of the clergy who have different stories of their failures or successes in, 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 in funerals. And there's that yeah. lovely book, which I don't know if you've seen yet. I'm sure you've probably come across it. You know everyone, Catherine Mannix. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, her, her beautiful book, uh, Listen. Being a doctor who's had to give that news, and the first time it happened, she got punched in the face, you know, and that, that's, yeah. that's the story it starts with. I'm gonna, we've run out of time in on you. We've oh, covered God. nothing. We've covered absolutely nothing. And this is exactly what happened when we did that show about the Wicker Man as well. Oh, did we just talk about other things? No, but it's, it's been really nice. I, I, I just wanted to, it is always a joy to talk to you. And, and, and one of the things is, I, I found, I always hang around graveyards. I've done it, I did it before the Smith Release Cemetery Gates. I did it from the age <laughs> of 10. I would go to our, 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 our local cemetery. And there was one that I, I went, I was at near Newark the other day in a cemetery that I've been in before. And I just wanted to read you this stone which I thought was so and I don't know why I've never noticed just it just said this stone marks the burial place of Jervis Howe who after a life marked by firm integrity and liberal kindness was gathered up to his fathers like a shock of corn fully ripe Ooh. and that to be gathered up to his father's like a shock of corn. I'd never seen anything like that. I've seen, you know, I'm always hunting around the ice by book of different tombs. But that one, to be gathered up to the liberal kindness, I thought this is, you know, 1837, whatever it was. Yeah. Important to the liberal kindness. And then the sense that he had lived a life that meant he was a shock of corn fully ripe when he was finally, you know, harvested. Yeah. There's a lovely book you've got in my crypt. I've got the Reverend Sir John Dolben, who's my favourite predecessor, who was squire and parson, squarson here in the uh, late 17th, early 18th century. And he's in the crypt. And when he died, he uh, gave his body to the physician. So he was his best friend was the physician in town, the village. And he gave his body to the physician that he might discover its mysteries 
lest my children and grandchildren be plagued with the agues that I have suffered. Which is lovely. That's, uh, thank you so much, uh, Richard. Are you, Pleasure. You, so, so you're, you're leaving, you're, you're, yeah. uh, you're retiring soon. Retiring in uh, end, of, end of April, which is weird. So I'm retiring and I'm moving away. I'm going down to the south coast. I'm going to live near a little village near Eastbourne, where some good friends of mine live. And I'm going to see what happens post 60. But I need to do a new start, I think. And so that's what I'm going to do. And also, I, don't, I work all the time and I needed to uh, take a bit, not work all the time. Well, also, you'll be near Hurstmonceau, which is a lovely observatory, and Camilla's oh, yeah. Bookshop in uh, Eastbourne, which have you ever been there? No, but I, I'm going to be very near Eastbourne, actually, so that will be fun. It is the most, it's, it's jam-packed, utterly, utterly jam-packed with books, and uh, it is... Eastbourne is the trendiest town in England now, apparently. I love it's because Eastbourne. everyone has done Brighton and Hastings, and now it's Eastbourne, so it's hugely trendy. Well, I highly recommend the Lamb Inn, which Thank I think you. is the, the oldest pub in Eastbourne, and it is run by someone who is wonderful. My friend Joanna Neary does shows there as well, which are always a delight. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. It was lovely to talk to you. I know yeah. we haven't talked about anything we're meant to talk about. No, we, we, do you know what? That's what I like about talking to you. And you, you talk as well so movingly and usefully as well. This, that's the thing that I've realised with uh, age is, is, you know, to, to be usefully moved and to be moved usefully. That's, that's a handy thing. That's good, isn't it? My dad was a removal man and he usefully moved people. So I'd consider that to be a heritage. Well, I like the fact you, you are now metaphorically. This is the... Uh, um, brilliant. Thanks, Richard. That was really nice, and, and I hope you have a lovely evening. Pleasure. Thank you very much for listening. Please do subscribe and rate and like five stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. Patreon.com slash bookshambles is where you can go to support the show, get extended episodes and everything else. Check out the shop at cosmicshambles.com slash shop, and we'll be back next week with a new episode and a new guest. Until then, take care, stay safe, and bye for now. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.